Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 2. We're also going to be reading a couple of verses from chapter 1. And the reason for that is because this story tells, they both are telling the same story of day 6 of creation, when God creates humans. And we already discussed chapter 1 a bit, uh, but I saved one really important topic for today. All right. So Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, says this. Then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock and all the wild animals, all the living creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, you guys, there you have it. The beginning of God and the Bible's vision for gender, marriage, and sexuality. Some of you just got really tense all of a sudden. Like, don't worry, we're going to make it through just fine. In fact, this is and has always been a very hopeful and optimistic vision. For real, though, this is probably the most controversial topic that we could ever talk about in the church, which is why I prayed a little bit extra for today's message. Um, And for some reason, uh, for some reason, most of us... um, feel very uncomfortable bringing up sexuality in the church. And I think that's because, a couple different things. You've been caught up in the crosshairs of a culture war that you did not want anything to do with, or you are confused about your own sexuality, or you know a bunch of people who are, and the way that Christians typically respond to the LGBTQ plus community feels off, or it feels confusing to you. So it takes a lot of courage, I think, to be a part of a gathering like this because our orthodoxy is at stake and that matters to us. We also feel very, very deeply for everyone involved. And I'm well aware that some of you are in your seats right now thinking to yourself, man, I'm starting to like this church. I hope they don't mess up the gender talk. And like, that's fair. Trust me. I feel you, okay? We're going to do this responsibly, carefully, and thoroughly. As Jesus followers, we are commanded uh, very clearly to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. So at Riverbend, we never want to shy away from what the scripture teaches on anything or its authority in the church. But our heart is to never be condemning or judgmental. Uh, This subject, like anything else we talk about, it has to be handled with love and compassion because it affects real people in our own church and around the world, real people who God loves. So we have to handle this with tact and understanding and love, compassion and grace. So as I was praying a little bit extra (laughs) this week, I was reminded uh, that Sam, our youth director, he Uh, told me something, that last week they had polled the middle school and high school students at Riverbend uh, Youth about what they would like to talk about uh, at at Riverbend Youth. And they came up with some really exciting questions. The students wanted to know about other world religions and like science and the Bible, a bunch of stuff like that. But another common question or another common response from the students was, stuff we don't normally talk about at church. I'll give you one guess. What do you think that's code for? 
Yeah, it's basically just the one thing, right? Um, <laughs> uh, this, the, but, but, but it's, not, it's not just the teenagers who are curious about this and want to talk about sexuality. It's sexuality, it's gender, it's, 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 it's marriage, right? So th- this week we wrapped up the Intentional Film Series um, on Monday night for the parents of our church and we hosted Q&A. And in that Q&A, Phil, Diane, Brooke, and Elizabeth fielded your questions as parents. And several of the questions were questions about how to talk with our kids about gender, sexuality, stuff like this. So adults and kids alike are wondering, we need to know what does the Bible say? What does God say is good, right? As a whole idea of Genesis 1 and 2 is to get a vision for God's good world. So what about sexuality? What about gender? What does God say is good? So I hope to answer that today, but I feel like I need to ask you for, my patience, for, for your patience. And the reason for that is because we come into this conversation with all kinds of different perspectives and a wide range of experiences. In fact, I was trying to get my head around how to talk about this with all of you. And so I made a list of the different perspectives that I could think of. And it took me forever. So you could be a Jesus follower or not a Jesus follower, depending on where you're at with faith. And you could be in a healthy marriage. Or you could be single and really want to be married. Or you could be in an unhealthy marriage. Or you could be divorced or widowed or secretly addicted to pornography. Or a woman who's nervous the Bible may promote a patriarchal view of marriage. Maybe you're same-sex attracted, or you identify as gay or lesbian, or identify as transgender or some other non-binary gender identity, or you have a family member who identifies as LGBTQI+. Or maybe you're a person who's worried to express their opinions because it might offend their coworkers or church family. You could be a parent who's worried about the controversial gender science education being taught in Oregon public schools. I'm not done. You could be a person of peace who just wants to avoid the topic altogether and wants everyone to just get along. You could be new to faith and now you're like a little bit nervous that God may be sexist or homophobic like some of the stereotypes suggest. Maybe you're a teenager who's being peer pressured into non-binary stereotypes at school. Or you could be a teenager who's easily influenced to embrace pop level ideology because of groupthink and social influencers. Or you could be a politically minded person who thinks that activism on whichever side of the issue you fall on is the answer. Or you could be that guy who listens to Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro, right? Who thinks that tone doesn't matter. And because you might disagree with woke culture, it gives you the permission to be unloving. Or you could be that other guy who listens to Dak Shepard or John Oliver and thinks that education and sophistication gives people the permission to be elitist and dismiss people who disagree as uneducated or stupid. Or you could just be a person who is tired and you came here for encouragement and a little bit of hope today, (laughs) right? Or, actually there's one more that didn't make the list. You could be the guy on stage who's trying not to commit career suicide. (laughs) Or just like an inbox full of angry emails. Like it's just like there are a lot of perspectives here. So I need your patience, because if we're going to do this responsibly, we need to examine the biblical literature, the text, with precision and with nuance. The subject matter is important, so the details are important. There's a lot of ground to cover. So although you may not have come here for like a lecture on the biblical data, you might get some of that today because the details are actually really important. So clearly we are not going to settle the whole puzzle today. In fact, I think it's is much more helpful to just look at this topic like we look at every other topic in the whole of Scripture and in all of the Bible. We want to come to everything in the Bible humbly, and we want to ask sincerely, intellectually, honestly, what does the Bible say? And what is God's heart? That's our job. We want to understand what the Bible says and what's our heart. What's God's heart? So people, I'm very aware, by the way, that that people outside of the church, maybe some of you who are like new to faith, maybe not sure how you feel about Jesus, you will find it absolutely ridiculous that we would use the scripture as our guiding authority on sexuality. I'm very aware of that. But in case the steeple was not a dead giveaway... Like, you're in a church right now, I'm a Christian pastor, right? And so I believe that following after Jesus means that we, as Jesus followers, we 
are under the authority of Scripture. And it's my job to clearly teach what the Scripture says and to convey his heart. So it's your choice what you do with that, but I, I know what my work is to do. It's to clearly explain the Scripture. Final caveat, I promise. There's been a lot of them, but the final caveat is this. This message is not meant to be rhetorical. Like it's my turn or our turn as the church to just like add to the noise of this conversation. This message is actually meant to be applied to your life. So no, ma no matter who you are, the message is the same. God loves you. He's made you in his image. He does have an ethic and a vision for your sexuality that's good. He doesn't need your help fixing it. He doesn't need your help pointing out those who don't follow it. The focus is on your sexual integrity. The focus is on your purity, and that's what matters to him. And that's what's in the realm of your control. So that's where we dive in, is around our own personal sexual integrity and purity. So here's what the scripture says, Genesis 1, verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This is the biblical paradigm for human identity and gender. Now, it's been my experience that when pastors and theologians typically begin the conversation around sexuality, they start in the wrong place. They start in Leviticus or Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6. That's fine, but I think it's way, way better to talk about gender and start right here. Because if we want to know God's heart for gender and sexuality and stuff like this, let's start with God's original design itself. Not the rules that God puts around it later. Of course we need to talk about that. But if we're looking for the vision of, of, of God, God's good design, then we need to start where he starts, which is on page one, which is what we just read. Now you've heard me say for years, if you've been with us, that who God says you are is the most important thing about you. You are a son or a daughter of God. You are a member of his family. You're a king or you're a queen. You're a priest. It's all Genesis language. You're beloved among many other things. Now this, what we just read, is the first statement in the Bible about your identity and who God made you to be. Meaning this first statement is hugely important and foundational to our understanding of ourselves. And we learn two things. We learn we're made in the image of God. We've talked about that at length a couple of weeks ago. Like the moon reflects the light of the sun, you reflect the light and the presence and the character of God in the world to the rest of creation. That is an important calling that we all carry. The second thing we learn about our identity is our gender. God created humans male and female. First of all, notice that uh, both genders are made in the image of God, not just the man. So scholars agree this has to mean something important. It means that men and women uniquely reflect God's heart in the world. There's something that we gain from God from the female person that we don't get from the male and vice versa. Also notice that that means that both men and women are equal in God's kingdom. Can somebody please get excited about that? <laughs> societies throughout world history, even Christian societies, have been notoriously sexist. Certainly the world that Genesis was written in. But according to God himself, women are the image of God. It's a very subversive, disruptive statement to say in, in the world of Genesis 1. And women are equal with men. So the church needs to be, must be, a representation of that true new community that gets this right. The Eden-like home where shalom, God's peace, is equally enjoyed amongst women and men. So guys, I think... There is some onus on us, regardless of how you feel about third wave feminism and secular culture or whatever, we need to champion and celebrate the women in our family. Like we must do that. And we must, in the church, like elevate women as sisters and co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God, Galatians 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and dozens of other places, right? That said, men and women are equal, but they are not interchangeable. Right? There's something about third wave feminism that I don't understand um, that wants to flatten out and remove gender difference. For some reason in that paradigm, to have equality, you must remove distinction. Again, there's plenty about being a woman that I don't understand, obviously. But, but according to Genesis, that would be a sad, sad mistake. 
our difference and our distinction is what makes the pairing of a man and woman beautiful and, 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 and complementary and whole, like complete. My wife and I are completely different people. We have different roles in our marriage as well that, that complement each other. My wife, um, if you don't know her, she avoids uh, the limelight, so she's not up here very often, but she is an incredible human being. She is full of courage. She's full of faith. She is bold. She sticks to her convictions. And let me tell you, she endures suffering and hardship unlike anyone I know, and I know a lot of people. Last seven years has been uh, crazy. Planting and leading Riverbend in the Northwest in the 21st century, having lost twin daughters the year before, raising kids in the technological age, the polarized political climate, the sort of sleepy and uninspired church culture of evangelicalism in the West. On a small budget, the church is falling apart, the building is falling apart is what I mean by that. <laughs> the COVID era, the mental health epidemic, Listen, church planning and leading a church has been a grind. It is hard, hard, hard work. And in the last decade, this work has tested and broken the resolve of pastors in record numbers. My wife, on the other hand, is resilient and glowing with enthusiasm for the future of the church. She is grabbing me by the hand and wanting to go charge some new mountains. Like, she is a beast, and I'm so proud to be her husband. She's got, like, with all of the uncertainty and adversity in the world and our mission, what's, what, where we're headed in the 2020s and 2030s, our mission field has a lot of uncertainty and adversity. She looks at all of that stuff with a smile. Case in point, a couple months ago, um, after, like, a really long week and a really long day, we were sitting down and having dinner, and I told Grace, I'm like, I'm not sure if this is the best time to bring this up, but I'm gonna. Grace, I think it's finally time. We're gonna do the 24-7 prayer room. We're going to do it, right? And I said, you know, I've been talking about revival and preaching and studying and researching how revival comes in culture. I've been doing this for years. I'm sick of talking. I want to pray. And we didn't at the time know that so many of you would be jazzed about it like I am and like we are and would want to be a part of it. And so I said, you know, Grace, we might have to trade off taking shifts through the night for 40 days. And without hesitation, she was like, great, like, let's, let's do it. This is, this is who we are. This is what we do. I, I love you guys. Like, I love you a lot. You cannot hold a candle to my wife. She's incredible. <laughs> She's incredible. She's in the prayer room with our kids. She's got them excited about seeking God's face. She's training them to love the Lord with me. And she's pastoring our church with wisdom and love. Listen, like, I am fortunate to have her as my wife. Notice that... None of my male friends, great men of God, pastor buddies, would ever make a suitable partner for me in life, in marriage, or in mission. Not because they're not man enough, because they're not woman enough, right? And I'm not saying that as cliche, I'm saying that as truth. Like the Bible says, we need complementary, different people to be paired together for family and for mission. So the fact that Grace is female and I'm male, that's what makes us a powerful combination. And that's what makes us image God in a whole way. So both male and female are Mago Dei, both are equal, but we're not interchangeable. Equal, not interchangeable. Much more on that next week. But also, let's notice now in the, the text that we're studying that there is no reference here or anywhere in the Bible for that matter that indicates that there are more than two genders. There's one reference about a person who was a eunuch from birth in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. But that's not a verse building a biblical paradigm for three or more genders. That's a reference about a story about a man with a birth defect. With a birth defect. Still today, there are sadly many people who are born with genital birth defects. And in the biblical paradigm, that's a tragic part of living in a broken world, not a vision for humanity with dozens of genders. Hope, my daughter who passed away, um, she had a birth defect called arthrogryposis. That was not how things were supposed to be for her in God's good world. It was a birth defect that was on par with other natural evil like tsunamis and cancer and stuff like that. 
So in the biblical paradigm, being born with atypical genitalia does not make you a third non-binary gender. It makes you a male or female person who's in God's image with a disability, who is deserving of love and and compassion uh, just like anyone else on earth. Next, I want to point out that contemporary gender science and sociology, which is all very, very new and experimental, separates these things that are typically one, gender identity from gender expression from biological sex. So in this paradigm, your anatomy doesn't always match how you identify psychologically. And you might express your gender in ways that don't conform to the heteronormative behavior. And this is all being uh, like explained to us as scientific reality, which I'm definitely not qualified to talk about the scientific aspects of gender science. But I can say that that is a totally foreign idea to the Bible. In the book of Genesis, which we've said all along is the definitive story about who we are and why we're here, gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, they're all the same thing. It's your gender, and you're male or you're female. Is this making sense? So for 99% of human history, this has been what is universally understood, right? From the 1970s on, these categories are being classified. These new categories are being classified. And the new categories are just in conflict with the word of God, which is my area of competency. But there are a lot of cultural anthropologists who who, who say that it also feels very risky to experiment on these new categories with a generation of kids coming up in the technological age. And I tend to agree with that, too. So, so far, we're not even talking about who we're attracted to sexually or who we want to have a romantic relationship with or sex itself. All we're doing is talking about gender. And the Bible gives us these two biological, or if you like, anatomical categories, male and female. Now, notice, though, uh, in here, there's, again, some of you are, like, are, are having, are, like, enjoying this. Others of you are starting to feel on edge again, right? And wherever you're fe- however you're feeling, it's all fair. There are people praying for you right now and all of that. So, like, please don't feel, like, judged or hostile or anything like that. Let's nuance this a little bit further because there's plenty more here. Notice that Genesis isn't portraying antiquated masculine and feminine stereotypes. That's, that's not what's going on here. Adam is not Dwayne Johnson, right? And Dwayne Johnson isn't even Dwayne Johnson. What we see is like the curated, Hollywood-stylized and edited version of Dwayne Johnson, right? And Eve is not Marilyn Monroe or whatever female antiquated stereotype that you would like to put in that place. Nowhere in Genesis does it say, and a man must love hunting and full-contact sports and his hair must be cut short and he really doesn't care about the arts and he certainly doesn't really care about style and the women must only enjoy domestic activities like cooking and sewing or whatever. Like, that is not in the biblical narrative at all. Those are Americanized, hyperbolic projections onto the biblical narrative. The Bible is just saying humans are male and female. So... I think some, not all, but some of our, gen- our generation's gender dysphoria can actually be explained by the massively powerful and warped storytelling of our culture, who creates these heroes who are larger than life, Superman, Iron Man, Aquaman, Patrick Mahomes, right? right? <laughs> and then we aggressively define masculinity or femininity according to those strict standards. And if you don't aspire to be Patrick Mahomes, or you can't be, you're, maybe you're not a man at all, or maybe you're trans, or maybe you're non-binary. The Bible would say, no, maybe you're just a boy who's passionate about the arts. Or maybe you're just a boy who wants to invest his life in a career as a nurse. Nothing in the biblical paradigm suggests that that stuff should send you into a spiral of gender dysphoria. Desiring to help the sick doesn't make you a woman any more than becoming a roofer would make you a man. Right? So we have to nuance that out. Some of the In the Bible, gender is not equal to antiquated feminine or masculine stereotypes. That's something that we have projected onto the biblical narrative uh, because of our cultural moment, not the scripture itself. Is that making sense? Okay, because that's important. That said, it is very clear to all of us um, that many, many people in our world feel a deep discontinuity with their biological sex and their sexual orientation. This is obvious in the world. It's obvious even in our own church. And it cannot be explained by like a premonition to things that stereotypically belong to the other gender. It does happen that a person can look male on the outside but feel very female on the inside and vice versa. 
It does in fact happen that a man or a woman is sexually attracted or romantically attracted to another man or to another woman. And there are many, obviously, variations, both physiologically and psychologically, within those orientations. And again, the orthodox, let me be clear, the orthodox, historically Christian, and I believe truly biblical view is that those orientations and those sexual desires are not a part of God's good design from Genesis 1 and 2, which is why we see teaching after teaching throughout the entire biblical narrative in the Torah, in the teachings of Jesus, in the New Testament letters that prohibit same-sex sexual relations. Here are just a few of them, Leviticus 18, 20, Matthew 15, Matthew 19, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, right? Now, these texts, these verses, they speak against the sexual behavior, and they separate the person who's loved by God from the actions that are sinful. Let me repeat that. The verses speak against the sexual behavior, and they separate the people who are loved by God from the actions that are sinful. So you're probably already aware that some Christians interpret all of those scriptures very, very differently. And the arguments they make are come in many different forms, but each of them has the same essential point, which is this. That the biblical passages on same-sex sex, they need to sort of be updated from the ancient thought world to what we now know about sexual orientation, right? In other words, what they're saying is that the biblical authors were doing their best, but they were products of their sexist and homophobic cultures, right? So um, that is the classically what's known in theology as like the affirming view. And again, it takes on a bunch of different forms. But this is very problematic. This is a problematic way to do Bible interpretation. I'm speaking to you not as like a homophobe or a whatever. I'm speaking to you as a Bible dude, right? And it's very problematic to do Bible interpretation that way because it's putting me as the reader of the scripture in the role of evaluating and editing the morals of the Bible to fit my, quote, evolved understanding. So who's God? Who's the authority in that situation? Well, it's the one with the red pen out who's saying, actually, you know what? We've thought better of that lately. Like, that, that is who's God. So it shouldn't surprise us that a rationalist American audience would, would want to do that. And in all honesty, evangelicals have done this not just in this area, in all other areas of theology. We have to pay very close attention and interpret Scripture carefully. And we cannot let the Scripture be hijacked by the ebb and flow of moral relativism. We cannot let the Scripture be pulled and hijacked by the ebb and flow of moral relativism. If we were to do that, and people have, generations have, and it happens quite often in our culture today, it eventually leads to a rewriting of Scripture almost completely where we end up following the God of self, not King Jesus. It's like, ah, I didn't really like that part anyway, so I'm going to, like, there's some reason why that's outdated, and there's some reason why that needs changing, whatever. We end up worshiping the God of self, not King Jesus. We don't want that. We stand firmly in the view that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So to summarize, it really is quite clear from the scripture that the Bible prohibits same-sex sexual relations. It's equally clear that the Bible prohibits all sexual immorality. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But among you, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Sit with that for a second while I take a sip of water. <laughs> In other words, sexual immorality is not just a problem for people with homosexual attraction or non-conforming gender identity. It's a human problem. We all have desires, we all have lusts, we all have attractions that God says that we need to say no to. So the word translated sexual immorality is a Greek word porneia, and it refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage, right? So the message is that we are all experiencing brokenness in our sexuality, and we are all being commanded to not indulge in all of our desires, and particularly the, the desires that don't align with God's good vision for sex. 
remember uh, many, many years ago, I was uh, pastoring at another church as like the youth and uh, kids and young adults pastor. I was like doing lots of things at this church. And um, uh, it was a great church, and I have a lot of admiration, respect for them in a lot of ways. But uh, there's this one family um, that was um, like pregnant without being married, and um, which, you know, again, in the biblical paradigm is not like something worthy of condemnation. It's just like, a, like not God's good design. And they were just a part of the family, part of the community. No one was really correcting their behavior or anything like that. And I felt really um, just convicted about that. I feel like we as the church should call people into holiness like the scriptures say. A- another time, there is a lesbian couple that, that came to our church for the very first time. And from moment one, those women were ostracized, looked at with side eyes, meant to feel not welcome. And it was so tragic. At best, it was hypocrisy. At best, it was hypocrisy. Now, I'm not saying that the straight couple should have been treated worse. They should have been called to faithfulness and holiness and love. But the homosexual couple should have been seen, listened to, and cared for like the straight couple had the opportunity to. And they should have also been called to faithfulness and holiness. Instead, we were tolerating one couple's sin without corruption, or excuse me, without correction, and we were ostracizing another couple for the same sin. Does that make sense to you? We're like, we are tolerating one couple's sin without correcting them, and we're ostracizing another couple for the same sin. This is at best hypocrisy, probably more than that. It cannot happen. We have to be consistent in our sexual ethic because God is just and righteous. Notice what Hebrews 2, which is right after all the stuff about sexuality, by the way. He judges everyone according to what they have done, which leads me to the next thought. The Bible prohibits the activity, same-sex sexual relations. He doesn't condemn the attraction. In the biblical narrative, this is very clear. He prohibits the activity, doesn't condemn the attraction. So you see the difference, right? Part of living in a fallen world means that we have warped desires. I am prone to greed and pride and envy. I'm prone to be critical of others. That's what the Bible calls my flesh. And Jesus knows that I'm weak and he still came to save me because he loves me. My favorite example of this is John chapter 8. Jesus is being tested by the religious elites who are hoping to trap Jesus into stoning a woman they had caught in adultery. It is a sad premise, but that's exactly what happened. Then Jesus did this beautiful thing that he often does where he turns it around on them by asking them a question. So he writes something cryptic in the sand with his finger. We still don't know what it says. And then he says, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone. And slowly but surely, everyone in the crowd drops their rocks and walks away. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Do even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. So Jesus does not condemn the repentant heart. Imagine the startling joy and beauty that this woman felt at the mercy and grace of Jesus. It's just a profound reality, but he's not done. Out of that same posture of profound love, he calls us up to holy lives. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, go and sin no more. That's the idea. Galatians 5, 16 says, if you walk by the Spirit, then you will not carry out the lust of the flesh. This is very intentional language. It's been here the whole time. We've just missed it. Meaning you are empowered to forge a whole new way of life that brings glory and honor to God. Now, you still may have broken desires, but when you walk by the Spirit, you have his power to not carry them out. This is basic Christian discipleship that we accept in almost every area of theology. It's time that we apply it here when it comes to sexuality. We respond to Christians who engage in same-sex sexual activity in the same way that we respond to anyone else who might be stuck in a pattern of sexual sin. It's the John 8 way, the go and sin no more way. 
right? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. So I've got lots and lots of experience over the last 15 years um, working and helping with people who are caught in sexual addiction. It's probably one of the most common idols of our culture, actually. Masturbation, pornography, casual dating, hooking up. Particularly in the last year, we have seen way, way more people, even in our small church, coming forward to confess and seek deliverance from their sexual sin. It has devastating effects in the lives of people, but I'm starting to see something else that I think is extremely beautiful. Confession of sin is this powerful light that um, allows us to experience wholeness in Christ. I believe this is, in, among other things, a precursor to revival. When we see, I see more and more and more people coming forward to confess their sexual sin. I'm going, this is all just a precursor to revival. God wants a holy church. He's doing a new thing. He's getting a hold of us. He's stirring a passion for Jesus. And as a part of doing that, he exposes the idols of our hearts because he wants his church to be holy and undivided in their worship to him. And so this is all coming and bubbling to the surface, which is why many of you who've lived in hidden sexual sin for years are now being convicted to the point of coming forward to receive forgiveness. So we confess our idols, and when we confess our idols, he purifies our worship. He gets all of our affection and praise. It's a glorious and it's a beautiful thing. So like I said, I've had a lot of experience walking with people through sexual addiction, and here's what we do for anyone who's stuck in sexual sin. We offer them grace. We show them the love of Jesus. We restore people through repentance and through forgiveness. We, we uh, encourage deep vulnerability in community. We encourage godly counseling. We pray for and we encourage people to live by the Spirit. We challenge them and support them in an ongoing way with their sobriety. For years and years, we've done this with dozens of men and women in, uh, who are now walking in purity. And we're going to be doing it dozens of more times too in the years to come. So why would a same-sex attracted person be any different? Why would we not just love them in the exact same way that they love Jesus and they confess their sin? Let's care for our people, right? That doesn't mean that we expect people who are same-sex attracted necessarily have gender dysphoria. They'll ever become straight, right? That's one of the popular ideas of the 90s that unfortunately, since it's around, I still have to talk about it. But um, of course it's possible God can do whatever he wants. It's typically not the norm. Right? There are many, many examples, to the contrary actually, where same-sex attracted believers are faithful and holy. And it's beautiful. Some people choose to remain single and live a celibate lifestyle. Not everyone's made for that, but 1 Corinthians 7.32 says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man or woman can spend his or her time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. Right? So when you have... Uh, whether you have homosexual attraction or heterosexual attraction, you may be single for a significant portion of your life. And being single can be a very sacred calling. You can serve God and his kingdom with focus and energy that most of us married people just cannot. For example, I went to Brazil for like 10 days. It was such a strain on my family and my stage of life. So if you're single, you're, you're free to devote yourself to the mission of God without domestic responsibility, right? That's, that's, that's something. And I know that many of you may just not want to hear this, and I know it's easy for me to say because I'm married to the love of my life and all of that. And many, if not most of us, are probably made for marriage. However, let's reclaim a vision uh, for singleness that embraces intimacy and a love relationship with God and a devotion to his kingdom work all at once. Other people who are faithful Jesus followers who are same-sex attracted, they decide to get married into a mixed orientation marriage. And one of my greatest friends in the whole world, his dad was a gay man who loved Jesus and married an amazing woman, and they had a family together. And it was not perfect, not even close, but no family is. And they, in many, many ways, had a beautiful, strong relationship that honors the Lord Jesus. And my friend is a man of God as a result of his mother and father in that situation. So I know many people in our community and around our community are in that exact same situation. There are some of you here with us who are in mixed orientation marriages. And it's clear to me that you are imaging God. You are reflecting his heart and his presence just like the Rothrocks do. A hetero couple. 
And I admire, I deeply admire the journey of faithfulness to God that you're walking in a confusing era in which we live. It's confusing as a straight person. Some of you have been dealing with same-sex attraction your entire life, and you've been begging God for years to change your orientation. The next day you wake up with the same desires, with the same attractions, and yet you've chosen to not obey those desires, but to walk in purity. And I admire that deeply. There's several questions, many, many questions that we haven't come close to answering. For example, we haven't even touched on professing Christians who are gay or transgender, and they don't acknowledge their sexual relationship as sinful. Uh, They consider the view that I just presented to you as cruel, uh, to expect people to go through life without a romantic partner. We also haven't begun to solve what to do about the Pride Fest, right? Like, that's a big question. Which if the folks from the Pride Fest were here, many of them would think that I'm a religious terrorist and that you're part of the problem for not reporting me and leaving or whatever. So the level of animosity towards the biblical vision and those who hold it is extreme, So a couple of things in response to that as we close. Um, Number one, the LGBTQ plus community is not the enemy. They may be wrong or taking part in leading people away from God's vision for sexuality. They uh, They may be making your life in the state of Oregon much more difficult. Uh, to lead your family towards Jesus. Yes, I feel that too, but they are not the enemy. For example, think about the 14-year-old kid who's introduced to porn at age seven, which is very common, by the way, and then doesn't have the opportunity uh, to have a community of love who's guiding them into adulthood, and they watch six hours of American media per day. That kid is gonna have a warped idea of sex. He's not the enemy. He's deceived. He needs help. He needs community. He needs the truth. He needs Jesus, right? And the pride community is preaching to him the gospel of acceptance. And that feels really good to a person in that situation. But are they the only ones who will love them enough to listen to their story? Or will the community of Jesus walk the treacherous road of keeping the sacred fire burning while forging meaningful relationships in a secular age? Will we feel deep within ourselves how the gospel of Jesus is good news to the LGBTQ plus neighbors and friends that we have? And will we love them enough to be present? Second, we need to keep that holy, sacred fire burning. We need to recover the courage and the fortitude to say, sorry, we cannot be bullied or penalized into adopting a social agenda of our day because the Lord God occupies the center of our hearts. We are loyal to him. He gets to define good and evil for us, not the secular zeitgeist or people in power steering the ship away from the biblical vision. We are loyal to King Jesus. It's who we are, right? Oh, and by the way, have you considered him? Have you considered Jesus? He's wise, he's powerful. You might just find by turning to him, you'll gain hope and a vision for eternal life. Right? Like this is, all necess- this is all part of it. We need to recognize who the enemy is is and is not. And we need to keep that sacred fire burning. We won't be bullied into adopting the social agenda of our day. And then finally, aggression and animosity are signs of people who are hurting. That's what it is. I think the intense, harsh feelings towards the church around sexuality is the result of decades of suppressed anger towards God for things that he's not responsible for. Do not think the LGBTQI plus activists are right. I do not think that we're getting sexuality wrong. I believe in the vision that I just spoke to you. I think people are hurting. I think people are lamenting the broken world. And so they're transferring their pain onto God. They're saying he's the one to blame. This is basic human psychology. We did it to our parents in high school. And um, we also do it to God at times. Transfer our pain onto the authority figure. The good news is that Jesus is extremely familiar with being falsely accused. If I lost you, come back to me. Jesus is familiar with being falsely accused. And he's got a very specific way of handling it. And it's the cross. And on the cross, he absorbs hatred. He absorbs attacks against his character. And he releases blessing Instead, to his accusers, he forgives them, he prays for them, is willing to accept them as a part of his family. 
And the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, they reveled in unfair treatment for the sake of Jesus. They considered it to be sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and they rejoiced when it happened. And the history of the world was shaped by those few people, a couple hundred people, their decision to not fight back, but to instead absorb hatred and release love. And Christianity exploded in the Roman Empire as a result. The Roman Empire of all places. So there is an incredibly disruptive power that comes when a creative minority in a secular culture are willing to absorb the blows of people who accuse them. Will you bless? Will you forgive? Will you pray for the people who profess hatred for Jesus and hatred for you? That's the burning question. That's the real burning question of our day. I'm not saying this is the popular way to go. I'm saying it's the redemptive cross-shaped way to go. And if there's any hope of us influencing broader culture in, in Oregon, it's going to start with that kind of love from Jesus. Not imposing our morals on people who, believe in the, who don't believe in the authority of Scripture, right? Like any of us could actually resist the lusts of the flesh without the power of the Spirit anyways. Instead, let it share, the, share with God's people, the people of God, the love of Jesus through listening and through compassion. Remember Romans 2, the very same section that talks about this stuff about sexuality. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that leads to, to repentance. So our role is to be kind in response to absorb the blows of people who profess hatred of Jesus and us for holding this view. And then we also get the beautiful opportunity to invite them or to introduce them to the risen Jesus. Then we have the opportunity to disciple them into maturity, to go and sin no more, right? That is not at all the final word on sexuality or on marriage. Uh, more on biblical marriage next week. You guys survived it. We made it. Did we survive? Okay, sweet. We made it. Uh, but I wanted to share uh, with you before, I, before I'm done here just a couple of really helpful resources that have helped me think through and shape my understanding of the Bible on sexuality and gender. Um, the first one is um, an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. It's really, really good. Um, it has all kinds of courses, uh, particularly for parents and a lot of really good stuff there. There's also a great book by Dr. Preston Sprinkle called People to be Loved. If you're going to read one book on this, though, you need to read A War of Loves by David Bennett. He's a former gay rights activist who identifies as a gay Christian. He's living a celibate lifestyle now, completely transformed by the Lord. It's a powerful word, tons of credibility. It's really, really worth your time. War of Loves, David Bennett. So I want to end by just saying that we are here to serve you. I said a lot of stuff about sexuality and gender. Probably only answered part of your questions. Maybe I made you more confused. I don't know. Hopefully this was a blessing. But um, if you have more questions, we are here for you. We want to talk. But more than that, like I said at the beginning, this is about your personal sexual integrity. It's about you walking in purity. And so if there's anyone here who needs to receive, um, like, like the, the, the church to come around them uh, in confession of sin. Oh, man, we, we are here for you. We're not perfect, but we do have a process of how we can help you go from a place of brokenness and sexual sin and being caught up in these patterns that keep you from the life that God has in mind for you and into a full, robust, like whole, complete life in submission to King Jesus. It's really good stuff. So we want to encourage you for that. Um, okay. Good work. You, you, hung, you hung in there. Let's stand and let's pray together. So God, thank you for vision. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you you're not actually ambiguous or confusing, but you actually have a lot of love and compassion. This is your primary disposition. It's how you come to us. Lord, the oh Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, bounding in love and faithfulness. We want to have full integrity, Lord. Don't want there to be any discontinuity between our message and our life. I don't want to point the finger across the room at someone or across the political aisle at someone else. 
without examining the speck or the log in our own eye. Thank you that your word is so good. We can rely on your truth. And Jesus, thank you for your heart. Your heart for that woman who was caught in adultery. When the religious elites were wanting to throw stones, Jesus, you, you called to account their religious pride. And you pointed out the hypocrisy in their own hearts. And you showed compassion and grace and mercy on the woman. God, we find ourselves in a place of needing ourselves, sexual wholeness, integrity, purity. So ultimately, God, we just want to receive from you today your love. Jesus, you are enthroned. You get to call shots. We submit to you. We're loyal to you. God, thank you that you are a relational God of love who wants to restore us in relationship with you. You Guys, we're going to respond here. And I know that many of you are feeling a lot of things that hopefully have been... um, clarifying and helpful. But let's respond by turning to him. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. He says, I love you. You're mine. You're my chosen. You're my beloved. So let's sing to him and enter into this moment of purified holy worship as we confess our sin we are capable of lifting our hands and praising the lord of lords jesus you are god we love you in jesus name